Busy day ahead. Why not save time and shop online at supervalue.ie? Let our expert pickers do the shopping for you and our helpful drivers deliver it when you get home. Download the Supervalue app now or shop online at supervalue.ie. The Future Proof Podcast from Newstalk. Proudly supported by Science Foundation Ireland. Hashtag believe in science. Hello and welcome to Future Proof on News Talk. This is the show where we take a closer look at the world around us. I'm Jonathan McRae. If you'd like to get in touch with the programme, you can email us, science at newstalk.com. You can find us on Twitter, we're at News Talk Science, or you can text us for 30 cent 53106 and we get to those comments in the podcast. Listen and subscribe for free on the News Talk app, powered by Go Loud. Coming up on this week's programme, Professor David Nutt on finally creating a synthetic alcohol that never gets you drunk and never gives you a hangover. First, though, it's time to look back at the week's science news. And joining me over the internet is Dr. Shane Bergen from UCD and Dr. Lara Dungan. You're both very welcome. Our first story, Lara, is about genomes and the human genome being sequenced. But I sort of have a sense of deja vu here. I know, absolutely. Um, Obviously, the Human Genome Project was extraordinarily famous and it began 22 years ago in 1990. um, And it it took um, about 13 years to fully sequence the whole thing. And it was a $3 billion project. And we were all, you know, jumping up and down for joy in 2003. The human genome's been sequenced. Yay, yay, yay. But it actually wasn't fully sequenced. Um, What they missed out was certain parts of chromosomes that are quite tightly packed. So there's a thing called a centromere, which is right in the middle of most chromosomes and it links the the chromosomes together. And there's bits called telomeres, which we've talked about an awful lot on this show, and they're the bits at the end of the chromosomes. And they hadn't really sequenced these sections, and they were between 8 and 15% of the entire chromosome, or the entire genome that they hadn't sequenced. So this um, consortium, which was called telomere to telomere, has now sequenced what they are calling the entire genome. So 3 billion base pairs, including the centromeres and the telomeres. And they have come up with um, a really astounding wealth of data that scientists can now mine. The amount of people that are on these papers, it's multiple papers that were published in the journal Science and in other journals at the same time. The sheer number of researchers that have had to work on this, the sheer volume of work that's gone into it, and the amazing amount of data that's come out is really extraordinary. How did they claim that they'd done it before? Like, is it, are these parts of the genome not important? I mean, is it... Didn't they miss the Y chromosome last time as well? Yeah, so the Y chromosome actually only came out this year. It was kind of the, the, the I suppose, full stop at the end of the whole thing. Um, sorry, sorry, that's a pretty important chromosome, is it not? Eh, not to all of us, but I <laughs> know, of course. And it's very important for you guys. Without it, you would not exist. No, but it is. You're absolutely right. And, and it's a kind of, it was it was not exactly a perfectly true claim that it was completely sequenced. But what they did sequence was the vast majority of functional genes. So genes that actually produced proteins that went on to have a function in humans. But right. they missed an awful lot of the other parts. And it is really fascinating to see. I mean, even in this new um, sequence, there's more than 2 million additional variants of, of the human human genome, so bits where it's different in people. And they provide much more accurate information for 622 medically relevant genes. So, I mean, these were missed in the original runs of the genome. So it's really fascinating stuff. So every person, as they're um, being formed um, when the fer- with the fertilized egg, my understanding is that the two um, sets of DNA combine, and you get a, a patchwork of those two. And every generation is about 60 or 70 genetic mutations from the error of copying the code from mum and dad. So, so when we talk about a, a genome 
that is a reference genome, how do they take account for all of the diversity that is in in each of us um, across many different genes in in terms of mutations and epigenetics and so on? That's a really good question. Um, What they've used specifically to to look at this, what they're calling essentially the base genome, is they've manufactured a cell that each chromosome is identical. So, So everybody has two sets of every chromosome in our body. There's 23. And then to multiply them, there's 46 in each cell. But as you said, we get one half from our mother, one half from our father. These cells have the exact same chromosome on both sides and they're basically calling it the the base chromosome, but they're obviously pulling in a huge range of information from humanity. So they're going to be able to reference the bits that are off, the bits that are mutations, the bits that are unusual, but they will also know what, you know, is in 90 to 95% of everybody and they'll call that the main sequence. Right. Uh, Okay, Shane, our second story has to do with microplastics. And this is obviously something that we, we've been aware are in the environment uh, around us, that's it's in the water. But now we find that they are in us quite significantly. Yeah, they're not just in the water. They're actually in the air as well. Um, we see that they um, are of highest density in places where there's lots of people and lots of activity. These are tiny pieces of, of plastic that are have diameters about the breadth of a human hair. So they're really light. And they can float around and unfortunately get into everything. And they're from things like uh, packaging, bottles, all the stuff uh, that we have in our world. And and this is work from Hull. And they have found that these microplastics have been found deep in the lungs of 11 out of 13 patients who, who gave samples. Um, they are suggesting that these things are being breathed in um, because they're in the lung. And um, they're really concerned about the effects of this because, um, you know, having alien uh, particles in your body is not a good thing, particularly in somewhere as delicate as the lung. And they are concerned about things like cancer risks um, uh, from having them there. So, like, these things are just absolutely everywhere in our environment. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's yet another negative thing from fossil fuels. Of course, all plastic is made from from carbon that's dug up from the ground. And we see the IPPC report this week just saying, you know, unless we stop using fossil fuels the way we're using within the next decade, um, we're we're not going to be around for much longer in a world that looks anything like the way it looks right now. And and so I know we're looking at lots of different alternatives to plastics, but at the moment, is there anything we can do to stop that level of plastics that we have in the air? Or, I mean, there's no way of going back from that, right? If we're talking about airborne plastic, we're talking about something that presumably is everywhere and and very difficult to rewind the clock on. Absolutely. And research has shown these microplastics that have been found everywhere from the tops of mountains to the depths of the ocean. They've been found in the placenta of pregnant women. In pregnant rats, we've seen that microplastics uh, can move from uh, from the placenta into the hearts, brains and other organs of of the fetus. Uh, So like it is important that we do limit uh, the amount of, of disposable plastic we use in our environment. Yeah. All right, so let's move on to something more pleasant, shall we? Drunken monkeys, Lara. Yeah, absolutely. There's a very interesting man. He works in um, UC Berkeley um, over in California. His name is Robert Dudley, and he wrote a book back in 2014 called The Drunken Monkey. And he's interested in why humans are addicted to alcohol. And this is going to come up a lot on this show later, Johnny, so I'll be very interested to hear what your your contributor has to say. 
but he has a theory that it's historical, that it's in our DNA and that monkeys naturally want alcohol-filled fruit. So he combined with um, more researchers and they went to Panama and they looked at spider monkeys. And what they did was they basically loitered around spider monkeys and after they discarded the remnants of the fruit they were eating, they picked them up and they looked at the alcohol content. And then for the, the joyful researchers who got to do this, they gathered the monkeys we as well. And what they did was they assessed what level of alcohol was in the fruit that the the monkeys preferentially went to eat and whether or not that alcohol was actually metabolized and whether the metabolites came out in the wee. And what they found was that the monkeys liked fruit that was about one to two percent proof. So that if you think of a regular beer, it's probably about five percent. So these these fruits actually had one to two percent alcohol. Now, it's not like us drinking alcohol. Like a Bud Light or a Miller Light. Like, uh, yeah, probably even half that. I'd say those are about 4%. So it's probably a light light, a Bud Light light light. Um, but it, it wouldn't work in any way like us drinking alcohol. So when you drink alcohol, obviously you don't fill up as quickly and you can consume vast quantities. When they're eating the fruits, they, they eat the whole fruit, so the pulp, and they fill up far quicker than they would, you know, become drunk with. But it is fascinating because they get extra calories from this ethanol. So his feeling or his belief is that we are wired. Ancestral humans were wired to choose fruit with alcohol in it because it gave you more calories. And he thinks that it's, it's in our DNA. So our addiction to alcohol in modern times is more of a nutritional excess like our obesity epidemic than it is an alcohol addiction, I suppose. Um, this is from um, the breaking down of the sugars in the, the fruit then, is it? Yeah, so there's yeast that are naturally within the fruit. And if you leave fruit to over-ripen, then the yeast will break down the sugars to alcohol. Um, and you will actually get more calories from that. So their theory is that the monkeys can smell out the ones that are overripe, that will give them more bang for their buck in terms of nutrition. Uh, so like rotten fruit is worse for you than fresh fruit? Well, I suppose the the more overripe it is, the more likely it is that there's booze within it. But I don't think we're going to be getting drunk on our overripe bananas sitting in our fruit bowl. Uh, And finally, Shane, uh, our last story is on popularity. Yeah, it says the road to popularity can be paved with unpleasantness. So uh, I'm sure like people like you are uh, both are very popular because you're nice people. Um, Well, Lara is anyway. And uh, I was just going to say, Shane, (laughs) know your audience here. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> so uh, this this research from Florida says that disruptive children uh, uh, or so-called aggressive children can leverage conflict uh, to become popular. Um, and so what they've done is they've looked at uh, 356 8 to 12 year olds in something called a longitudinal study. So they looked at them at multiple points and they studied the hypothesis that disruptive children engage in conflict sometimes to strengthen their position and enhance their popularity and it was done over a semester. And they found that levels, initial levels of aggression or disruptiveness were associated with an increase in popularity over, uh, over a, a term. Um, these sorts of, of papers are very common and they're fantastic for, for clickbait, for, for, for red top newspapers and, and perhaps shows like this. But it is, it is a little shaky because, you know, you're, first of all, you're trying to define things that are subjective, like popularity. Or indeed, what does aggressive mean or disruptive? And then you're asking those groups to self-report. Uh, so there's subjectivity in the reporting about something that is itself subjective. But if you look at this paper, because it's very curious. Actually, oh, yeah, but if you throw that, itself. I mean, like, I, I know we give out about psychology all the time, but um, people know what, what, an, what an act of aggression is. I mean, you have to give people some 
I mean, but if we, you can't, we, if you no, can't no, say anything no. about anything, you know, like there, there are some useful learnings from this. Show. But then, no, no, the, we can't all say that we all know what aggression is because aggression to you is not necessarily the same as aggression to me. So um, and, and similarly for, for popularity. So what I might find popular isn't necessarily the same as you and Lara. So pretty it's just sure. when we pretty, try pretty to sure define these that. things. <laughs> when we try to define these things and and sort of I uh, give them the, the sort of level of scientific accuracy that we might associate with electronic charge or concentration of an acid in something, um, we, we have to be really careful at over reading into the, 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 the findings here. Um, also, I was very uh, kind of glad to see at the end of the paper that the authors did say they weren't claiming that this was okay, that you should be kind of like coaching your kids to just go in there and be aggressive because they'll become popular. Uh, but they are saying it is interesting to understand human behavior for kids at this age. I mean, is the is the theory that the more dominant members of a group are seen as more popular? Um... So it's a fear thing. So I, I'm, it's kind of like, I suppose like Stockholm syndrome or the way sometimes people like to like their bullies. Um, it's it's uh, it's it's just that there's a threat there and they're probably well known uh, amongst the kids in the class. For, for the way they behave. Uh, so, yeah, I don't know. Um, this sort of stuff, very, very common, very, very shaky. I wouldn't call it science. Yeah. Well, uh, we, we always have this problem where we ask the physicists to do the psychology story, but I just love you. <laughs> I love your enthusiasm for them. Dr. Shane Bergen from UCD and Dr. Lara Duggan, thanks very much. All right. On the way, the dawn of synthetic booze. Now, there is a sweet spot on a night out. And for me, it's usually around a pint and a half. I'm a cheap date. I, I'm, I'm feeling happy, relaxed and confident. Everyone around me is finding my anecdotes insightful, my jokes hilarious. But at some point after that, I inexplicably become intolerable to everyone, including myself. And that feeling is only exacerbated when I wake up the next morning with a thumping headache and a grave sense of dread. And it's gotten much, much worse as I've gotten older. So why does this happen? And could synthetic alcohol be the solution? Well, Professor David Nutt is Edmund J. Saffer Professor of Neuropsychopharmacology at Imperial College London and the man behind Alcarel. He joins me now. Welcome back to the programme, uh, David. I've been doing this programme for 12 years and you were one of the first people that we had on, on the programme because I, I thought this idea of synthetic alcohol so interesting, not least of which because I was a big fan of 2000 AD when I was a kid and, and it just fit really much into that idea of, you know, synthetic drinks that we'd be drinking in the future. Tell me a little bit about um, this journey, because you've been working on a synthetic version of alcohol for some time. Yes, the idea first was put out in a government report I, I, I authored in 2005, when, when we kind of came to the realisation that um, you couldn't find antidotes or blockers to the bad effects of alcohol because alcohol has so many different effects in the brain and in the body. And you'd, so you'd have to find multiple different kinds of blockers. So then we kind of thought, well, maybe the alternative is to work out what the beneficial effects of alcohol are due to and target those. And I wrote a paper in 2006 saying this has got to be the future. And uh, it's proved to be quite a challenging future because a lot, because <laughs> raising funding to do this kind of innovation has been challenging. Uh, not least of which because people say, well, you know, do we need to? And I say, well, of course we need to because alcohol in most Western countries is the most harmful drug of all because it's so widely used. And then people say, well, it, how could you do it? 
you know, could it ever be done? Well, I say I, I don't know, but I think I've got some good good ideas and some good targets. And they're saying, well, you know, until you prove it, you know, we're not going to invest. And they think, well, hang on, guys, you know, you know, <laughs> we said the alcohol is the last area of modern life where we haven't had disruptive technology, and, and it's ripe for that now. So, um, tell me what exactly alcohol does to our brains that we would want to replicate synthetically. So alcohol is a very small molecule. It gets into the brain and it works on many different chemicals in the brain. You know, the brain is a, is a, what we call it. It's a chemical organ. It uses neurotransmitters, little chemicals to communicate between all the different neurons in the brain. And alcohol interferes with quite a few of those different transmitters. But when it starts off, as you described, that first pint and a half where you're relaxed and chatty and really, you know, very good at what, you know, at telling stories and things because you're in that sociable, <laughs> sociability, conviviality mode. That, we believe, is due to increasing a chemical in the brain called GABA. And GABA is the core relaxant in the brain. It helps keep the brain in, in tune, keep the brain at the right level, the optimal level of, of functioning. And most of us are a little bit anxious. Most of us, particularly when we meet in a bar or we meet strangers or even people we haven't seen for a while, we're a little bit anxious. And by boosting GABA a bit, we take away that anxiety and then we can socialise in the, in the chilled, relaxed way we want to. Have we done, have we, have we actually managed to, to prove that in, in the lab in, in mice, for example? Well, we've proved it in the lab in humans. <laughs> That's a fact. Oh, have you? Okay. Oh, yes. So, 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 uh, so you know that it, that this um, chattiness comes uh, as is as a result of this GABA stimulation. Well, we know that GABA stimulation will mimic the effects those effects of low doses of alcohol. We know that. Yes. Right. And okay. It's not just my research. That's other people's research. So that's been that's been known for some time. The problem comes when you start to drink a little bit more than you know the, the you know pint pint and a half. Then GABA starts, sorry, then alcohol starts to work on systems other than GABA. And there are two really important ones here in terms of that loss of control that you described, which is very common. People start off saying, oh, I'll just have a couple, and then may end up being there all night on a binge with a hangover. And the transmitters that push that are transmitters like dopamine and the endorphin system. And alcohol starts to tickle those up at higher levels. And once it starts to do that, then you start to get into this phase of moorishness when you want more alcohol. Mm-hmm. You're not satiated anymore. You, you want more. <laughs> they, uh, and uh, both of those, as I say, the dopamine endorphins both contribute to the moorishness. And once that's happened, it's very difficult to stop because you've, um, yeah, your brain is saying, I want more, not I've had enough. So what we want is we want to uh, recreate that GABA stimulation feeling without triggering too much of uh, dopamine, um, because that is also uh, one of the things that makes certain drugs addictive, right? Well, that's right. I mean, the classic, of course, the classic dopamine drug is is cocaine, where you, you know, it's short acting. You take a, you know, it's a line. You get high. You come down after forty minutes. You want more. You take another line. You, and then people go on a binge over the weekend. I mean, that's uh, and that's driven largely by dopamine release caused by cocaine. And all- but why, why do, just, just as an aside, David, why don't we just synthesize dopamine? Uh, sorry, well, dopamine is a transmitter in the brain. If you give dopamine to people, it doesn't get into the brain, interestingly. You have to give a precursor to get in the brain. Um, and uh, that's quite a good question. It's slightly more complicated than just dopamine. But, but d- drugs that release dopamine, like cocaine, like amphetamines, and like alcohol, 
all cause activation in energy and and as I say, this sort of drive to take more. If you give dopamine precursors like L-dopa, which we do, of course, in disorders like Parkinson's disease, then the it gets in the brain much more slowly. And there's a very important factor in drug liking, which is the faster it gets in, the more people tend to like it. So if you take L-dopa right. pills and they get in over three hours, you don't get a high at all. But as if you take cocaine, which gets in in about 30 seconds, then you get a release <laughs> of dopamine. They, then you get a high quite quickly. So f speed of onset is quite critical for getting uh, a high from drugs. So uh, the arguments for a synthetic alcohol are, are obvious. Um, you know, the, the effect it has on our um, our livers uh, when um, the, our livers deal with alcohol and turning it into acetaldehyde, mm -hmm. um, which which is damaging, gives us hangovers and so on. Um, the social problems of alcohol, of course, and then the 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 effect it has on productivity and mood um, the next day with hangovers. It, it makes sense to recreate a, a, um, a synthetic alcohol. And when I spoke to you last, there was a certain um, tone to your discussions of this um, that, that I, I felt that you were, you were also trying to get the word out that, that you were hoping to get investment in. This was uh, maybe 10, uh, 11 years ago because you, you saw the promise in this idea. What's happened since then? So two things have happened. We have set up a company now called GABA Labs, which is, and we have made molecules. And I'm pleased to say we've just this week finished patenting the first synthetic molecule, which we believe will become the, uh, the first of these new synthetic alternatives to alcohol. But also we've um, worked with uh, and set up, a, well, we've set up a company called the Social Drinks Company, which is, and we've made our first product, and that's a drink called Sentia, which is a, a herbal drink that also mimics the effects of GABA and produces effects uh, that are generally perceived by people who drink it as being what they want. Relaxation, sociability, conviviality in social situations without getting drunk. So that's already on the market now. Um, it, you can get it into Ireland once you if it crosses the border, of course, there's a challenge now after Brexit. But uh, we are thinking we might start manufacturing in Ireland, actually, because it would be Ireland would be a good place for us to be in order to to sell it to the rest of Europe, given that you're still in Europe. So, so uh, there's, there's two two parts to this. The, the the synthetic part, of course, um, is a is a new molecule molecule, and therefore would have to go through a lot of regulation. But the scent is based on um, already approved food ingredients Correct. that you've just mixed together in a, a particular formulation. Um, and, and these and these molecules that are these active molecules in these foods mixed together, you feel create this um, GABA stimulation. How do you go about identifying organic compounds that together create something like this? Well, it took a couple of years of, uh, of, of um, library literature research. We went through vast numbers of papers on on different herbs, herbs that have been used in Indian medicine, herbs that have been used in Chinese medicine for calming, relaxing effects. Um, we brought them together uh, to, because herbs produce different ways of mimicking GABA. So we brought together different herbs with different contents. And then we blended them uh, with other herbs, which facilitate the entry into the, into the, into the body through the, the stomach and ent facilitate entry into the brain to because you want an effect which is, comes on as fast as alcohol, and alcohol gets in very quickly. So, And you also want a decent flavor. And what we have is a nice uh, a dark purple vermouth-tasting drink, which you can drink neat with ice, or you can use as a mixer with tonic or, or orange juice or whatever you like. So 
So, so, so what does it what does it feel like, and what does it taste like? If you if you had a, a couple of shots of this in uh, in tonic, for example, what, this, what does the effect feel like? So the the effect well the effect is that you begin to feel a bit more relaxed. You begin to feel you know that you've uh, the tension lifts from your head. You know you begin to start to look at people a bit more you know rather than you know in their eyes and look to look, you know you get more facial and can you smiling. can you make claims about that um on the label uh, obviously because advertising codes you know require you to prove these have you been able to do that well we have data that we would support what i've just said there's no doubt about that yes absolutely yeah i mean we're not calling, yes. we're not we're, we're, we're calling it a gaba spirit it is a it's a herbal spirit which does have many ingredients which potentiate gaba and uh, we haven't, we cannot prove yet that in the brain there is more GABA or more effective GABA, but we're doing studies now. That's a challenging thing to do, but we are setting up studies where we can exactly do that. We can actually measure people's GABA in the brain. It's technically challenging, but we are planning to do that over the next year. So um, you've described yourself the, the sensation that one gets from Senti as being um, mi- very mild. Um, but the, the idea is that the synthetic alcohol will be closer to the feeling one gets when we've had one or two, one or two no, drinks. No, no, right? the, the, the target of both is to produce an effect equivalent to one or two units of alcohol. And, and the, you know, the, the botanical drink does that. It's not very mild. I mean, for some people, it's actually quite strong. I mean, I think for people who drink a lot, it's pretty mild but for those who kind of drink kind of within normal recommended limits the effect is right. equivalent to one or two, you know to, to you know to one or two units of alcohol which is what we want but the great thing is if you drink much more we don't recommend that but if you drink much more you won't get much more of an effect it'll last a bit longer but it won't get higher so we have achieved what is a kind of plateau effect and that's really important because we want to avoid people having this moorishness. We want to avoid people wanting to take more and more and getting more and more intoxicated. You're not going to get wasted on Sentia. You're not going to get wasted on the uh, on Arcarel, the, uh, the synthetic. So explain why you would want to make a synthetic version of a product you've already created that does the same thing. Well, what we our vision is that this ingredient will be licensed to all the drinks companies in the world and they will put it into any drink they want to make so they could put it into non-alcoholic beer non-alcoholic wine non-alcoholic spirits and a whole range of cocktails so it can it can be transported around the world as a, as a concentrated ingredient and then used locally to make a whole range of different drinks the botanical drink is just to prove the concept and also to raise some funding right. so we can actually get going and also begin a discussion about you know, the alternatives, because it's quite a novel concept. And we're pleased that people like it and, and keep buying it. But, the you know, the market uh, into globally is not us making drinks and selling bo- sending bottles around the world. It's us giving a product, an ingredient, which companies anywhere in the world can then turn into alternatives to alcohol. And then people will have a choice. Mm. Now, if you, you want to get wasted, you drink alcohol. If you want to have a cheap, pleasant, pleasant evening with your, you know, your couple of friends or your girlfriend or your wife or that, you, then you drink the, um, you drink alcohol. So the drinks industry has responded in different ways, isn't that right? Some um, some are very interested, some are very dubious, and and um, it would be the same in the scientific community. Would that be right? There are a few scientists who say, "Oh, you know, this is something like what you're suggesting is possible." But you have this this product patented already yourself. So let's yeah. So there are two aspects to that. So what the industry actually started off a few years ago in the beginning being pretty negative. But the reality is drink sales are flattened or even falling at present. Uh, and that's 
partly for economic downturn from 2008, but also it's because a lot of younger people, particularly young professionals, are going low or no. And low or no means either they, they don't drink any alcohol because they don't want to be impaired the next day, uh, or they do low alcohol where they, um, they only drink at weekends or they drink less. So, And that's why there's been a big increase in sales of alcohol-like non-alcohol drinks, to which people pretend are alcohol. And just to emphasize this, ours is different. Ours is non-alcohol, but it does have a functional effect, whereas all these other drinks are just flavored water. Yeah. So the drinks industry has, is facing a challenge, and it's now becoming quite receptive to the idea because they see this is a, this could be an important, well, it is way the most important new technology in the field of, of the drinks and drinks business there's been since the rise of these um, these flavored waters and it and it could be a much bigger market because it, it gives people what they want rather than just uh, hydrates them when you look at scientists though then you yes there are scientists who say well you know anything that people like will be addictive that's not necessarily true but um, there will be some people probably who do maybe want to take more of it but what we're aiming at is something as I, i've explained earlier that we're aiming at something which is much less likely to do you harm and much less likely to make you want to drink more and much therefore much less likely to make you dependent and and uh, and that in its to my mind is a really important uh, important advance i mean there are people who say well you know we should just stop all drinking well yeah good luck to them but that's been tried and that failed so mm. let's find an alternative which people accept i think the idea of a synthetic alcohol is hugely appealing and i personally would love to try this product that you have but there is a bit of hesitancy about so-called synthetic products do you think that the public will get on board with, with with something like this or is it more likely that the industry will start making drinks with this in it and much like half the ingredients in in a fat frog or or, or whatever a lot of them aren't, aren't necessarily recognizable by by members of the public it's a, a fair point i mean there are people who who would prefer natural to synthetic but then i would say a couple of things the first is it's you know natural doesn't mean safe i mean botulinum toxins natural but very dangerous so you know and most of us have switched actually from natural natural medicines to to synthetic medicines for reasons of of purity and precision and safety so so there are that's, that's one value of synthetic another great value of synthetics is the sustainability our product will, our ingredient, our Corel ingredient, we will be able to send around the world one milliliter of that will be equivalent to a liter of alcohol. So, so the transport energy costs will be really, really reduced. And then, of course, when you look at alcohol production, there's a considerable carbon dioxide burden uh, and a, a also a burden from, from fertilizers and that of, of growing stuff to make alcohol. So. You know, there's, yeah. there's a lot of, to be said for, you know, having a an alternative. And, yeah, and obviously, people, we're not going to stop people drinking alcohol. Why would we? But I think it's a bit like, you know, maybe like the, um, the argument that's going on at present about nuclear power. No one wants nuclear power because of the possible rare risk. But on the other hand, a lot of us accept that, that it might be the least bad option compared with burning coal and, uh, and gas. Well, I for one can't wait to try it, and I'm going to see if I can order a bottle of Sentia uh, to see what what this is like. Because I know you've been working on it for such a long time. The very best of luck with, with such an ambitious project, Professor David Nutt. Thanks for joining us. It's been an absolute pleasure, Jonathan. 
have to say, I am very much looking forward to trying this thing. Um, Aidan McKelvey, our producer, joins us to go through some of your comments from last week's show. Um, what do you think? Do you want to give it a go? We get we get wrecked on on herbal alkosynth. Uh, yeah, why not? Um, I mean, one of the things when I was doing the research call with David, uh, which kind of is a bad reflection on me that I worried about, was he said, "Yeah, you know, you'll be it'll be like having half a beer." But like I like I kind of think you know sweet spot is like two to three pints. Well, maybe, <laughs> That's see, where I want to get. <laughs> maybe for him it's half a beer. Uh, you know, I I recently um, was out with my wife and uh, we had like literally two drinks and then we were supposed to record a birthday wish for someone on the video and oh man two drinks turns me into an obnoxious monster i mean i know that's impossible to imagine but it happened i saw the video evidence and so <laughs> so you're excited about this half, so, half a so, no i'm worried i'm, wor- I'm worried <laughs> a having seen this video back i was like oh my god i was very ott yeah i did think um i really do need to be careful what i drink in front of who so i'm i'm, I'm all over this thing all right, it's time to look back at some of your comments from last week. And uh, we were talking about the farthest star in uh, the news round. And John from Navin said, so is the star Arendelle long gone now? I guess it must be, John, because stars don't last that long, do they? I mean, we're talking about a very, very long time ago, although um, someone wasn't very impressed. He said, that guy's a nutter. Cat and dog knows our son is nine billion years old, not seven. Tick. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I love the ending. That's a very Dublin. Ending. I know. Um, you know what's interesting about that as well is that um, I I did look up. You, I think you did say seven billion. I can't remember if it was you or Shane who brought it up. But uh, also nine billion is also incorrect. <laughs> I looked it up, and the correct answer is actually four point something. Four and a half, yeah. Four yeah. And a half billion. Yeah. I did the same because I was like, what seven billion? I think is I mixed up with the number of people in the world. I think I, that's what I did. Anyway. Easy I'm thing sorry. to do. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I got it wrong. Well, you know, when it comes to billions, there's only like four numbers that are of billions. You know, there's beginning of the universe, life on Earth, number of, man, number of people, and how old is our solar system? And um, anyway, I got it wrong. I'm putting my hand Tick. <laughs> you took you. Um, Cormac uh, says, why does it annoy me so much with this commenting? That's a great question. It's as if these contributors all went on the same media course. Ha! Yeah, I, th- I don't know where they taught that. Are you taught that in a media? I, I mean, I, I, I train people to speak on, on the media and I never tell them to say that. Although I would say I do get a little flash of pride when they say it. Um, so I, I Yeah, think, it could be just that you ask great questions. I mean, maybe just well, with me, I ask amazing questions all the time. It can only be that, I think. Uh-huh. <laughs> finally uh, we got an email from David Murphy he says hi Jonathan recent conversation with friends touched on the prospect of nuclear energy being used in Ireland the takeaway point I got from the whole thing is that I'm now completely on the fence but would love to hear a proper discussion on the topic where all the pros and cons in as much as is possible during your radio show were discussed so that people can decide based on facts and not biases I think your show would be the ideal forum are we ready as a country to consider nuclear and what options would be available if we were to do so and what would be the cost financially, environmentally, socially, if we were to go that way or not? I recently watched a program about Chernobyl, which I think resonates so much with people in Ireland. Plus, there is that lingering fear we all have of Sellafield. Should we? What does the science really say about nuclear today? I'd love to know. We have touched on nuclear a bit. Um, and 
I, th I think the problem is it's such a long-term project that it's difficult to get over the line politically, isn't it? But it's not, you know, the, 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 the power plants of Chernobyl don't really exist um, today. It is a much safer prospect, but there is danger involved. Um, the problem is the layout uh, right now and the time it would take to build these uh, reactors, which is, you know, upwards of 10 years before they actually come on stream, which is longer than two governments, um, which is, I think, inherently one of the problems. But there's no question Chernobyl and Sellafield were massive red flags uh, and uh, they basically killed any idea of nuclear um, energy in, in most of Europe. I mean, France is one of those few countries that is hanging on and has done extremely well out of nuclear. Um, but I don't know, what is there, is there a discussion to be had on Aiden? I mean, it's, a, it's like it's such a huge question. I think that's why we haven't really. I mean, the pros yeah. are it's good. The bads, uh, the, the cons are takes a long time, a bit, bit dangerous. Well, yeah, I, I mean, I had to check the, the name of the person on this email because I literally had this conversation this week. I was like, is this one of my friends? <laughs> um, but it wasn't. But like, I think what you said there. Uh, and I don't know the answer to this, so maybe there is you know, space for this discussion. You said, like, well, we're looking at 10 years, but is it going to be any slower than getting the renewables up? Like, it seems to be people put it forward as a right look, nobody loves this idea, but it'll be a good stopgap until we get our renewables sorted or until we finally, finally, finally figure out fusion. Yeah. Um, and, and, and I know when we've had people on talking about fusion before, it's kind of been mentioned in passing how nuclear uh, fission of the moment is much safer and produces much less waste than it used to um so maybe there is a, a discussion there because i mean if if we could guarantee right we're only going to be doing this using this for 50 years yeah, um, it's not it's not a scientific discussion and that's kind of what we talk about on the program it's more of a political social sort of you know i mean are people going to say yeah sure build that nuclear reactor two miles from my child's school like you know no one will want this thing, which would make it very difficult to, to put it anywhere for the starters. Then it costs a huge amount of money, which we don't have, and half the people will be against it. So you haven't got popular support. It's It really isn't a scientific... The, the science has been proven. It is really, really safe, really good for the environment, except for of, of the obvious um, toxic waste. But um, it's, it's, it's more of a political, social, um, ethical than a scientific conversation which is why i think i've avoided it and i think i would tend to want to continue ignoring it <laughs> well yeah that's fair enough that i mean it is that debate but i mean i guess it, maybe it's a question for some other show on new stock but like <laughs> we do have the money. somebody else but you, you said we don't have the money but i mean we we're like the 12th richest country in the world mm. <laughs> yeah i'd say we almost certainly do have the money look at uh, the window but it's whether at we, we the want to spend it on that and the healthcare systems and like we 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 do inverted commas have the money but you're talking about like a lot long-term huge investment and we don't have like trains that go to Donegal like I think priority wise we've got to first organize that rainbow that that um white water rapids thing in <laughs> yeah. and then yeah. we need to sort out trains to Donegal then and the children's hospital yeah and then fiber to the home to everyone um beyond the you know the two 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 hour dublin commute that's it and then and then you can have your fusion 
Hello, <laughs> vote Jonathan. <laughs> <That's> fu <laughs> the future is bright and optimistic with Jonathan. Indeed, indeed. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean it's an awful shame because there was a um, there was a huge reaction to it, and while anyone being sick or anyone dying as a result of radiation poisoning that is obviously a horrible thing to happen to anyone but in terms of you know like deaths from mining for example or explosions on gas rigs or whatever you know nuclear is a really really safe thing it's hard though because mutations cancer they're such emotional things that we don't we don't put them on the same um playing field and so we we, we you know i think we made emotional decisions about nuclear for obvious reasons um, but they don't, I don't think they match the statistics when it comes to, you know, deaths, environmental and, and, and many other metrics that you might compare to sources of energy. with. Yeah. And, and anyway, if this week goes to show, and we should have, uh, we have so much feckin' wind. Can we not just power <laughs> everything by feckin' wind? It's yeah. everywhere. Yeah. Well, let's see where all that goes. I mean, I, you know, Amy Ryan is getting an awful hammering for, recommending very sensible and small changes we can make that will actually have a big difference if all four million of us do them it's crazy to see people giving out over that like that's just you know common sense don't have long showers save water like it's not that those things so sacrifices aren't hard if we all do lots of those we won't have to make huge sacrifices as as soon as we might anyway that's my lecture over yeah, no, you did right. I'm voting for Jonathan. Um, that's it for us uh, on the Future Proof Podcast. Thanks to Aidan McKelvey, Simon Keane, Steve Daunt, Jojo Cardoso, who was on sound. We'll have more in your podcast feed on Tuesday, including a really interesting piece with Claudia Duram about gravity. Don't miss it on Newstalk.com or in the Newstalk app powered by Go Loud. I'll see you next time. In the meantime, stay curious. It's time to take cover, people, and save yourselves with Great Value Home Cover from Super Value Insurance. You'll get a 15% online discount and shopping vouchers with every policy. That's a great deal for the cover you need anyway. All it takes is one big click or call. Just visit supervalue.ie slash insurance or call 0818 and our team will save the day without the drama. Terms and conditions apply. Vouchers include two 10 euro or 40 euro spend. Home contents only policies excluded. This home insurance is underwritten by AXA Insurance DAC. Super Value Financial Services DAC trading in Super Value Insurance is regulated by the Central Bank of Ireland.